so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Are you among the chief advocates against abuse, injustice, and discrimination against the gay and lesbian community in our society? I don't mean will you consent that it's wrong, but are you an advocate against abuse, injustice, and discrimination on their behalf? Isn't that what you would do for a friend? I do want to apologize to the gay and lesbian community on behalf of my community and me for not standing up against abuse and discrimination directed towards you. That was wrong. And we need your forgiveness. The ERLC's first national conference, held in 2014, addressed issues relating to the gospel, homosexuality, and the future of marriage. J.D. Greer, pastor of Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, gave a stirring and practical message titled, Preaching Like Jesus to the LGBT Community and Its Supporters. We hope you benefit from this message. church I'm privileged to pastor in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina has um, a large number of college students in it. Um, Every weekend there's probably 2,000 or so students from UNC Chapel Hill or NC State, Duke University, North Carolina Central University, which means uh, a couple of things about us. One, church unity uh, presents a real challenge for our church, uh, especially during basketball season. I was backstage with one of our worship band members and we were he were about to go on stage as the service began and I know he was a Duke student and I know she had on a t-shirt that said go to hell Carolina and I said bro you cannot lead worship with a shirt that says go to hell Carolina he said pastor I'm just doing what you've always taught us you know love the sin or hate the sin I said what does that got to do with anything he said he said Carolina students are the sinners Carolina is the sin I said, that's not a bad answer, but you cannot walk on stage with that. So he took a piece of duct tape, and he uh, taped over the E-L-L and put E-A-V-E-N. So it said, go to heaven, Carolina, uh, is how he led from the, from the stage that weekend. So church unity is a real challenge. But the other thing that is true about our church is uh, the things that this conference has so helpfully discussed are things that I deal with um, as a pastor, um, I would say almost on a weekly basis. Uh, something that I have um, had to learn a lot through, something that not only has God and his word challenged me on, but friends have challenged me on and helped me understand things. Dr. Moore and his leadership here has been immensely helpful, and so I'm very honored to be able to be here. Um, I want to begin my time um, really in that vein by telling you about Brennan, who is a young man in our church. Um, he's a very close personal friend of mine. He was very active in our leadership for, for many years. Um, he worked directly, in fact, on my, um, on my personal pastoral team. But he had a secret that uh, he never really shared with anybody, and that is that uh, he had a same-sex attraction that led to severe bouts with pornography that then led to a string of hookups with random guys that he met in chat rooms on the Internet. He's wrestled with it now for for several years, 
Uh, recently, he and I had a, a long conversation, and he said, you know, I understand. He said, it's, it's wrong. He said, I can't read the Bible any other way and not conclude that. He says, but, you know, there's no way I chose to be like this. He said, it wasn't in seventh grade that I suddenly decided this is how I want to be. And he said, I was never abused. Um, he said, I just, he said, it just seems to be something that I have. Um, and he said, and I imagine, even though he said, I've, I've in, in many ways got it under control, um, he said, I imagine it's going to be a struggle for me until the day that I die. I remain very close to Brennan. He is a very personal friend of my family. My kids, my kids love him. They're very close to him. I cannot talk about these things without thinking about Brennan. Um, as a close friend, I've had to learn to feel his pain, to grapple um, with his questions from his, his point of view. Um, I also want to tell you about a girl um, that I'll call Gina. I first met Gina in a cell phone store. Uh, she worked there. There was another girl there who um, is a part of our church. And together, this girl and I who went to our church invited uh, Gina to come visit our church. She'd never really been in church before. She did not grow up as a Christian in any shape or fashion. She was in her early 30s. She had been a practicing lesbian since she um, had been in college. To make a long story really short, she battled severe depression it wasn't specifically related, um, she says, to her sexual orientation, just, um, just her life. One time in the midst of, of depression, she um, told me that she was driving out to the Blue Ridge Mountains where she planned to, um, to take her own life. And um, as she was about 30 minutes away, she said, from where she had planned to jump off of a, a mountain or a bridge, um, this other girl uh, that she knew from the cell phone store that goes to our church just gave her a call and said, I don't know where you are, but I woke up this morning, I was thinking about you, I felt like God put you on my heart, I wanted to say that I, you know, loved you, and I don't really know what's happening, and well, Gina basically just unfolded for her what was happening, um, and where she was, and this girl at our church talked her um, out of doing what she was going to do, uh, Gina checked herself into a hospital, and uh, before she did, the girl that goes to our church gave her a copy of a book that I wrote called Gospel, and uh, she was trying to decide if she was going to read it. Uh, and so it was sitting there on her, her bedside when the doctor came in to talk with her, who does not go to our church, but um, recognized the book because he's, you know, in our community. And he said, I actually just finished that book. And he said it had a profound, you know, it just really helped me see some things. And, and then Gina just began to explain to her. And this doctor led her to Christ there in the hospital. Um, she is now um, a very active member of our church. Uh, she still struggles with these things. Um, but she is a leader. She leads. In fact, she's leaving this weekend to lead another one of our mission teams and some of our overseas mission efforts. I love Gina. Um, she also is a friend of our family. And so it's, it's hard for me to talk about these things without thinking about her and where she is and, and, um, and, and, and what's happening in her life. I know that there are probably many of you who are listening to me right now who have been hurt, ostracized even over this issue. Um, we know stories of parents who have disowned kids who came out as people with same-sex attraction or gay or lesbian. Just at the time they most needed the constant love of a parent, they faced rejection. Even more tragically, this has sometimes been done in the name of Christ. And you just have to ask what greater lie we could tell about our Savior than to distance ourselves from the hurting and the broken in the moment they would need us most. In this last session, I've been asked to pull everything together and discuss what it means to preach like Jesus to the LGBTQ community. The narrative that our culture puts forward is that we really only have two options in our relationship with the gay and lesbian community, affirmation or alienation. 
affirmation or alienation. I want to show you that Jesus presented in his life and his ministry a third option. Now, I know that the moment I talk or say that I'm going to talk about preaching like Jesus to the LGBTQ community, some will say, well, you know, Jesus never used the word gay or lesbian, so right there you're wrong from the start. And I realize that, of course, but I don't think that it follows to say that there therefore cannot be other ways to know that how he felt about it and what he would say. We've heard that question addressed already throughout this conference, and I'll address it again briefly in a few moments. But here's the question. Based on what we see of Jesus' life and teaching, can we know how Jesus would preach today to the gay and lesbian community? Jesus' ministry was a paradox because never was there anyone who so exalted God's standards of righteousness. He said he came not to abolish any part of the law, that sooner would heaven and earth pass away than one jot or tittle pass away from the law, and that except our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that we would never see the kingdom of God. Yet at the same time, there would never was there anyone so who so effectively gathered the outcasts, be they the prostitutes or the tax collectors, the oppressed or the oppressors, both sat at his feet, the thieves and the victims. The religious people of his day could not understand him. How could someone on intimate terms with God be so attractive to sinful people? The secular powers hated him because he presented a challenge to their absolute claims to authority. The last week of Jesus' life captures the paradox. His crucifixion was a joint project of both religious and secular power, while a former prostitute washed his feet with her tears and a thief defended his reputation from the cross. I believe the Apostle John captured the heart of Jesus' ministry in John 1.14 when he described Jesus' ministry as full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Truth without grace is fundamentalism. Grace without truth is sentimentality. Neither is, tra- is attractive without the other, and one without the other is not a reflection of Jesus. When we are full of grace and truth like Jesus... I believe we can expect to provoke the same reaction that he did to attract the broken and repel the proud, to gather the outcast and be maligned at the same time by secular and religious power. So what I want to give for you is give to you is nine ways that I think we will be full of grace and truth that come or we can be full of grace and truth that come from reflections on Jesus preaching in the Gospels. Please understand that I am certainly not saying that our church is the model in these. Um, These are more what we aspire to, not always what we live up to. Uh, Here is number one. Jesus representing churches will be known as the friends of the LGBTQ community. As I mentioned, the narrative that our culture puts forward is that there are really only two options in our relationship with the gay and lesbian community, affirmation or alienation. Jesus presents a third alternative, and he gives it to us in one of the most misinterpreted things I think he ever said. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. If you ask the average guy on the street to quote you two verses from the Bible, this is always one of the two. In fact, if you let me inject a little levity for just a minute, when I typed in on a Google search, the Bible says not to. Here's what Google auto-suggested for me. I think I'll put it here on the screen. Um, is it, does it come up? I can't say it. All right, the Bible says not to eat pork. That's number one. The Bible says not to judge. There we are, number two. The Bible says not to get tattoos. That's apparently... What people are looking for, the Bible says not to worry. Last one, the Bible says not to eat. (laughs) I don't know what Bible you are reading. Certainly not a Southern Baptist one, I can assure you that. But this is how we do sermon research, ladies and gentlemen. Um, But this verse is usually quoted 
in popular consciousness, in fact, Dolly Parton, I think, uh, most recently quoted this verse, I saw it this morning, um, to mean that we have no right to tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong. I heard Bill Maher quote it to that end. Who are you to say that this or that is wrong? Doesn't your Bible say to judge not? Was that really what Jesus means here? Well, frankly, he couldn't have meant that because he spent his whole ministry telling people, certain people, they were in error. Just a few verses um, after Jesus makes this statement, he'll say, Matthew 7, 13, that, that there's a wide gate and a narrow gate and that most people are going through the wide gate to their destruction and that if they want to be saved, they got to go through the narrow gate. This doesn't sound like a, hey, whatever, you know, whatever works for you kind of presentation. Later in Matthew, Jesus would tell a group of people, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In fact, here's how Jesus would characterize his whole life. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That didn't sound like a Jesus walking around in Birkenstock saying, it's okay, man, it's you know, legal now in Colorado, just let it go, you know? <laughs> Jesus' followers did the same. Paul commanded Christians in the book of Ephesians to rebuke the works of darkness. John the Baptist confronted Herod and his wife on their policy of open marriage and lost his head for it. And Jesus called him the greatest man ever born. So judge not cannot mean that we don't tell our community when God's word says something is wrong. Because the primary, that is the primary component of what it means to be a prophetic voice in the world. Well, then what does it mean to judge not? Maybe jot down this definition. It's what you do after you tell someone the truth that determines whether or not you're condemning or judging them. Jesus would describe his own ministry like this in John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So even though Jesus told some people that their works were evil, and even though he made very clear to everyone that unless they entered by the narrow gate, they would not get into heaven, he still, in his estimation, did not condemn the world. Why? Because not condemning does not mean not telling someone the truth. It means not casting them off after you tell them the truth. After telling us the truth, Jesus brought us close. He made sinners, us, his friends. You judge someone not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them as a person. I know many who are listening in the gay and lesbian community have been cast off by the church Maybe by your own Christian parents. And I want to tell you that is not Jesus. That is Satan dressed up in Jesus' clothes using Jesus' name. And I think the question to us as church leaders, have you drawn the gay and lesbian community close? Are you their friends? When you find someone who is gay, find out someone is gay, how interested are you in them as a person beyond their sexuality? Do you see them as primarily gay and lesbian, or do you see them as primarily people created in the image of God, just like you, who have gay and lesbian desires? Do you talk with them about things other than their sexuality? The world has elevated sexuality to be the defining element of who we are. Why would we follow their definition? We believe that the core of every person is something that we share in common, individuals made in the image of God. And then when Jesus died on a cross, he died for every human being made in the image of God, which means that his love extends to all. And then we'd say all different nations, all different kinds of people, you would say that his love extends to people with heterosexual tendencies and those with homosexual tendencies. Would gay and lesbian people feel welcome in your home? Are you among the chief advocates against abuse 
injustice and discrimination against the gay and lesbian community in our society. I don't mean will you consent that it's wrong, but are you an advocate against abuse, injustice, and discrimination on their behalf? Isn't that what you would do for a friend? I do want to apologize to the gay and lesbian community on behalf of my community and me for not standing up against abuse and discrimination directed towards you. That was wrong, and we need your forgiveness. Before we go on to number two, let me say something I hope that you don't misinterpret. As believers, as Christians, we have to love our gay neighbor more than we love our position on sexual morality. Which means that our relationship with them must not be contingent upon their agreeing with us about sexuality. It means that when they don't agree with us, we still don't push them away. The posture of many Christians in our churches is more characterized by anger than by compassion, by judgment, rather than by friendship. I am not saying that we would ever compromise our position or fail to state it, just that even when they disagree with it, we do not cut them off, we draw them close. We say, yes, this issue is important, I cannot compromise, but I love you more than I love being right. And so even if you don't see things my way, I'm going to keep bringing you close and I'm going to remain committed to you. In the cross of Jesus Christ, he shows us the right way to relate to the gay and the lesbian community. Clarity about God's righteousness, compassion that would give up its own life to draw them close. Number two, Jesus representing churches will not stigmatize sexual sin. Stigmatizing sexual sin shows extreme ignorance of the gospel. Let me continue on with what Jesus says in that judge not passage. Matthew 7 verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce... You will be judged. With the way that you cast off, that's how you'll be cast off. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the the two before that is hanging out of your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, a lot of people, when they see Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before dealing with the speck in your neighbor's eye, they think that Jesus is here addressing direct hypocrisy. And yes, if he's telling you not to be blatant hypocrites. If you're cheating on your taxes, don't preach to other people about not tithing. <laughs> when I grew up, I, there were people, I knew people that would flat condemn you for smoking a cigar because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit when they're 150 pounds overweight. And I'm like, bro, why don't you take the Swiss cake roll log out of your eye before... <laughs> You lecture everybody else about the (laughs) leaf in their mouth. So yeah, he's telling you not to be a blatant hypocrite. But I think he's getting it more here. He's confronting us for failing to grapple with our own sinfulness. Notice that Jesus assumes the log is in our eye. Not if there is a log in your eye. He just assumes that there is one. You see, Christian doctrine teaches that every human heart is deeply depraved like a polluted well. And there are certain people who because of their personality, their upbringing, their experiences, they learn to contain or cover up the tendencies of the heart, but the same corruption is still there. The first year that I went to college was in a place that was um, had a well for one of the dorms, the dorm that I stayed in. It, it was well water, and it was near a lake, and the water that would come out of the spigot tasted like fish. And no matter how, I mean, my, my roommate and I figured out that you could put in enough lemonade into this water If you get it basically the consistency of maple syrup, you could no longer taste the fish. Now, we didn't take really take out the fish taste. All we did was cover it up so that it was now covered over with all these other things. And if 
whatever was going on in there was, was, was bad or poisonous, we were still taking it in. That's what Jesus said the human heart is like. What religion does is it simply covers up. John Owen, the British Puritan, said the seed of every sin is in every heart. The seed of every sin is in every heart. Those who recognize that about themselves speak with a deep humility, a deep brokenness. Listen, because the commonality they feel with sinners is greater than any personal righteousness they think that separates them. So they could not talk about the speck of sexual immorality in their neighbor's eye without seeing it through the log of their own depravity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the first sign that you are awakening to God is a sense of anger about sin. He said the way this looks in the church is somebody comes in and they get very angry about the hypocrisy in the church. He said, but at that point, they haven't really even discovered the gospel. He said, because the sign they've discovered the gospel is they are angry about sin, but it's no longer everyone else's sin. They're angry about their sin. They're more embarrassed about what's in their heart than they is someone else's heart. And he said, only then are they ready to enter the church, not like a Pharisee, but like someone who has been redeemed and someone who has been saved. Sexual sin is not in a different category from other sin. And we pastors especially are guilty of talking about the speck in our neighbor's eye as if we're ignorant of the log of our own depravity. And the quickest sign of that is we speak with anger, disgust, and condemnation. Jesus told a story that was supposed to characterize every redeemed sinner. It was a story where a man had been forgiven, in Jesus' terms, 10,000 talents. 10,000 talent was a, you know, a, a pretty large unit of money, 10,000 in many contexts. 10,000 is the highest number they would go to. So saying 10,000 was like saying an infinite amount. Here's a man who owes another man an infinite amount of money, and the day comes for this debt to be paid. And you probably know the story. The man shows up in the, in the court and everybody's watching. And this man falls on his knees and he begins to beg and to plead. He says, sir, please give me just a little bit more time. In those days, if you couldn't pay your debt, you would go to prison and your kids would go to prison. And, and you would see, this is how one family would get enslaved to a, another family for forever. And so he says, please just give me another week. It's a ridiculous request because another week, another 10,000 weeks is not going to give him the ability to pay back this debt. Everyone in the courtroom is watching this pitiful spectacle because, you know, back then, like today, people who loan other people money don't get in the position they are by being softies. You don't call them loan puppies or loan bunnies. You call them loan sharks because if you don't pay, they come and break your kneecaps. But so everybody's watching this, and they're thinking, this is pathetic. When the most unexpected thing happens in Jesus' story, this loan shark, his bottom lip begins to quiver. He gets a tear in his eye, and he feels an emotion that Jesus calls splagma. Splagma in Greek means a gut-level compassion. It's an onomatopoeia where the word sounds like what it is, splagma. It just comes up from within, and he feels compassion. And he does something that nobody can believe is happening. He looks at the man and said, stand up. You don't have another week to pay me back because you don't owe me any more money. As of this moment now, your debt is resolved. In the presence of all these witnesses, you are forgiven. Well, the man can't understand it. He, he's just been forgiven an infinite amount of debt. And he stands up and he feels as light as there. And he walks out of the courtroom and he walks across the street. And there's a friend of his who owes him a dollar fifty for a Mountain Dew that he bought the week before. And he goes over to his friend and he says, hey, give me my dollar fifty. The man says, I don't have your dollar fifty. Man, it's been a rough time. I, I'll get paid next week. I'll give you your dollar fifty then. He says, no, if you don't give me my dollar fifty now, you're going to prison. You would imagine that when Jesus is telling this story, at this point in the story, everybody kind of shakes their head and says, oh, come on, man, that would never happen. No one who'd been forgiven an infinite amount of money would ever turn around and hold someone in contempt for a dollar fifty. And Jesus said, exactly. Which means that if you are characterized by disgust over someone else's sin, 
rather than being overwhelmed at the forgiveness that God has given you, it means that you are desperately out of touch with the gospel. Number three, Jesus representing churches will put forward God's designs for sexuality, not merely condemn its aberrations. And we know that those who wish to justify homosexuality will claim that Jesus never talked about it. Well, there are two ways that Jesus could establish what's right and wrong in regards to sexuality. He could talk about every possible variation of the wrong and condemn them one by one. Or he could put forward what is right. There were five women on this stage, one of which was my wife, and I wanted to identify which one was my wife. I could either point out to you the four that aren't, or I could point out the one that is. Either approach would serve the same purpose. Jesus repeatedly affirmed the Mosaic understanding of the sanctity of sex within heterosexual marriage. And by doing that, he disallowed all deviations from that, whatever variations and forms that would take. The implication for us, I believe, is that we have to put forward the positive vision for sexuality. Christian conservative approaches to sex have been more defined by identifying what is not right than what is right. According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, the loftiest view of sex ever put forward is what God put forward in Genesis 1 and 2. There he says we see, Paul says, that sex is a union between two independent beings. And the physical union of sex should be accompanied by oneness in every other area, emotional, spiritual, financial. Anything less than a complete and total unity, sexual unity that would take place in covenant relationship would be subhuman. It's like it's got a form of humanity, but not the whole of it. I often describe it to our college students like a zombie. What makes a zombie frightening is that they've got a form of humanity, but not the soul. Sex outside of marriage is partially human, but it doesn't have the completion of it. God designed the unity of sexuality to be accompanied by unity in every other way. They often use this analogy. Certain relationships are consumer relationships. Right? Like your grocery store. You go to a grocery store, somebody down the street's got a better deal than you. you. You might like your grocery store, you might like the people, but you're going to go where you get the better prices. That's a consumer relationship, and that's very appropriate. But none of us take that attitude toward our kids. Right? None of us are like, hey, you're just not working out for me. It's not me, it's you, but I've got to go somewhere else, and I've got to have a you know, different child. So the question that I present to college students is, which attitude do you take towards sex? Is it a covenant relationship, or is it a consumer relationship? Paul points out that God created sex to achieve a unity. And a unity, he says, between two genders that are other, which depicts God's love for things that are other and not just the same. The sex was resembling our creator. It preached something. It demonstrated to us whether we are Christians or not. We must preach the positive and beautiful dimensions of covenant love and sex. It's like Tim Keller, who actually used the illustration I just quoted, says, Sex outside of marriage can make you shout with ecstasy, but sex inside heterosexual marriage can make you weep tears of joy. Number four, Jesus representing churches begin with a call to repentance. Jesus representing churches will begin with a call to repentance in every generation. According to the gospel of Mark, the first word out of Jesus's mouth as he announced his kingdom was repent. We know the gospel of Mark. What he's trying to do is trying to get the essence of Jesus' message and ministry down. So that's significant. Now, I know the word repent in our day brings up images of people with sandwich boards and all kinds of crazy stuff. But repentance simply means that you acknowledge Jesus' lordship instead of your own. Every generation, not ours, every generation establishes a standard for what is right and wrong. The worst condemnation given in the Bible is that a certain generation, listen, did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was right means they were morally 
conscious. The gay community is intensely moral. In their own eyes means that they made their own sensibilities the standard. And coming to Jesus means a surrender of using our hearts as the beginning point for determining what is right and wrong and that we submit to his word as our beginning. What of Jesus' lordship offends a generation varies, of course, by generation to generation. In one generation, it is his teachings, or one society, it's his teachings against militarism and violence. In another, it's the equality and dignity of all peoples. In another, it's his designs for sexuality. The Bible is an equal opportunity offender. I cannot judge the hearts of those Christians who affirm the gay lifestyle, but I can point out that the shift in their thinking on this appears to be part of a larger bending to the culture. Because at just about all of those places where the Bible seems to be most out of sync with our culture, they seem to find a new way to read the Bible to justify what the culture sees as right in its own eyes. Even if that means turning their backs on what Christians have plainly taught and believed for two millennia. Oh, people say, no, no, but the Bible is just not clear on this. For 2,000 years, Christians have understood this to be clear. What's more likely is that they don't want it to be clear. They say God has not spoken plainly. He has spoken plainly. They just don't like what he has said. The first question that Jesus puts forward in his preaching is who gets to make the rules. People say, it's just, this is just, it's just too offensive. I, I get that. And I wish, honestly, as a guy who's trying to reach people and grow a church, I wish sometimes I could just change it or neglect it. But I love what Rick Warren says about this. We've got to choose whether we're going to have the disapproval of the world or the disapproval of Jesus. Which leads me to number five. Jesus representing churches will not be bullied into silence. We commonly hear that teaching that homosexuality is wrong as a form of hate. I watched one Christian blogger a few weeks ago tell Russ Moore that until he changed his view that gay people yearn for change and redemption, that gay suicides would be on his conscience. I've received packages at my house more than once telling me that I'm responsible for gay people that commit suicide and a gay or lesbian person taking their life grieves me deeply. But if what the Bible says about homosexuality is true, how can it be loving not to tell them? In fact, if what the Bible says is clear, it would be hate not to tell them. And I know that there are many who disagree with us, but I would ask them to understand this from our perspective. If we believe what the Bible says is clear, how can we not speak plainly? 1 Corinthians 6, 9, those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is true, how could it be anything but hate or at least severely delinquent cowardice that compels our silence? And people ask me, what if your son, I have a son who is four years old right now, what if your son declares one day that he is gay? I cannot imagine a human being I love more than my son. But if I love him, I will tell him what God's word says plainly. And if not, then I condemn him. And I hope I can teach him to, like his daddy, come to the feet of Jesus, broken and repentant. Broken men who both need a savior, repentant toward a wickedness in our hearts that neither of us have a way of excising. And if he was born with a proclivity toward same-sex behavior, and I was born with a proclivity toward anger, pride, deceit, and unfaithfulness, well, we both need to be born again. No one goes to hell for being homosexual. I know that because you don't go to heaven for being heterosexual. 
The only thing that puts you outside of God's grace is refusing to acknowledge your brokenness in Jesus' lordship. Come, he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not the well that need a physician, it's the sick. And if you think you're well, then you have no part of me. But if you understand that you're blind, you understand that you're sick, you understand that you're naked, then grace will flow down in a never-ending stream. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. What if my son and I come to a point where we don't agree about this issue? Well, then I'll do what Jesus did. I won't judge him. I won't send him away. I'll keep bringing him close. But I will warn him that the Bible says that the day of judgment is coming when the righteous judge of all the earth will hold us all to account. God has appointed that day and promised us it is coming by the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead. When we push someone away after speaking truth, we have judged them and failed to represent our Savior. But when we say peace, peace, and there is no peace, we have failed in our responsibility as watchmen on the walls. Number six, Jesus representing churches will preach the possibility of sexual orientation change, but acknowledge that it may not happen in this life. Repentance, for 2,000 years, Christians have understood that repentance means agreeing with God about a sin. Doesn't mean always being fully delivered from that sin. Richard Hayes of Duke University, far from being a fundamentalist, in his book, Moral Vision of the New Testament, says that the already not yet dimension of the kingdom provides the answer to whether gays and lesbians should expect to change their orientation upon coming to Christ. Already not yet. Already not yet means that Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom and we already experience a certain inbreaking of his power. But there's a not yet dimension to the kingdom too, which means that a lot of Jesus' ultimate healing works have yet to come. Physical healing works like this. Sometimes Jesus will heal as a sign of the kingdom, but sometimes we have to wait for the resurrection for ultimate healing. Many godly people die of cancer. It's not because they don't have faith. It's because their ultimate healing comes in the resurrection. And same works with our sin. I can look in my own heart and see things that I asked Jesus to heal me from, and he has. I am a changed man. But there are other things that I have yearned for redemption and healing from. And I have redemption in Christ, but I still struggle with it. The Apostle Peter struggled with pride and fear for his whole life. Yes, he fails Jesus when he denies him, but then Paul in Galatians 2 has to take him to task for the exact same things. You caved to other people. Doesn't seem that Peter ever really got over this proclivity toward pleasing men and being afraid. In the same way, we preach the already not yet of the kingdom in regards to sexuality. There are people whose sexual orientation God heals, like Rosaria Butterfield, whose story you heard yesterday. A neighbor in my city or whose son goes to our church, we baptized. There are others he allows to struggle so they can be a testimony to God's sustaining grace and struggle. In fact, I might even say to you that that's God's normal way. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, wrote once wrote a letter to a Christian friend in which he told him that he prayed for victory over a certain sin in several areas of his life, but God allowed him to struggle with that sin his whole life. And he said, if anything, some of my sinful tendencies seem to be getting worse. He said that God leaves sin in our lives to convince us until our dying breath of our desperate need of the gospel. That Christian growth, this side of heaven, is not getting to a point where you don't feel like you need grace anymore. 
which is how most of us think of Christian growth. I'm going to finally get my life together so I don't really need grace. He said Christian growth, this side of heaven, is becoming more intimately aware of how desperately we do need grace. The Martin Lloyd-Jones, the ultimate test of our spirituality is our amazement at the grace of God. So the more we grow in Christ, the more desperate we feel our need for grace, not less. This week, on Monday, I got a letter from a guy in our church, a young man named Josh, telling me about his journey with same-sex attraction. He says this, I want to quote, You preached a sermon from Hebrews 9 called No More Consciousness of Sins. You laid out in that message clearly that Jesus took away all of my guilt and shame by bearing it himself that I was not just forgiven, I was made pure by the blood of Christ. And at that moment, it all began to make sense. My same-sex desires do not define me. My identity is built on something so much greater, the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. God knew me from before the foundation of the world. He knew my sin, he knew my struggles, and he still chose to send his son to live the perfect life I could never live and die the death that I deserved. On the cross, he traded places with me, taking my sin and shame and giving me his place of righteousness with the Father. I am in Christ. I am a new creation. I began to see my struggle with same-sex attraction as a way for me to draw closer to Christ, as a way for me to see my own sinfulness and be driven even more to treasure the gospel, to treasure the fact that in Christ I am fully known and fully loved. And eternity became so much sweeter Knowing that even if I struggle in this world for the rest of my life, one day I will be with my Savior and be completely freed from this body of sin forever. All of that. All of that is to say thank you for being relentlessly committed to the gospel. I'm proof that faithfulness to the gospel in this area is crucial. At a fragile time in my life when I could have been driven to despair or to an abandonment of Christian teaching, I heard, submitted to, and treasured the gospel. And I want to thank you and your church for your role in that. We can and should preach the possibility of sexual orientation change, but acknowledge that it may not happen in this life. Richard Hayes, unless we live with the hope of the Spirit's transforming power already available, we're hoping for too little from God. And we're not taking into account the resurrection that God has unleashed in this world. Meanwhile, he says, the not yet looms large. And many may never experience freedom from this struggle in this life. And they will yearn for the resurrection. And they will join creation groaning for the redemption of their bodies. Number seven. Jesus representing churches presents the multifaceted beauty of the gospel in dealing with sexual sin. As I read the Gospels, I see that whenever Jesus dealt with someone in sexual sin, he never started with the sin. He always started with the root issues behind the sin. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, he deals with two different women caught in sexual sin. In John 4, he deals with a woman who is a serial adulterer. She's had five husbands, and the man she shacks up with now is not her husband. But he doesn't just say, stop it. He shows her that her addictive behavior is driven by thirst. And the water she craved came not in the arms of romance, but in knowing his everlasting love, that his was the love she had always been seeking. I've heard it said that in sex, we desire to be known and loved, but it's a dilemma, right? No, you, you want to be known and loved because to be loved and not known is sentimentality. To be known and not loved is rejection. We want to be fully known and fully loved, but we know that when people really know us, there is a sense when they see us in our soul nakedness, they might reject us. When they see who we really are. The Savior gave her the love. The perfect love that knew everything about her life. And then loved her entirely. This was the water of life that delivered her from the captivity to sex. Perhaps the clearest demonstration of this is what Jesus said to the woman in adultery in John 8. 
He says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I've always been amazed at the order that he put those two phrases in because I would almost always tend to reverse them. If you go and sin no more, then I will not condemn you. But Jesus put acceptance before change. Listen, because he knew she would never have the power to change until she had felt the weight of his acceptance. God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin. It is not the reward for us having liberated ourselves. That means I don't just tell the girl who has lost her virginity about the dangers of venereal disease or the shamefulness of her act or that there's a God, or you know, that just, I tell her there's a God who cared so much about her. But he pursued her, left heaven to come and take upon himself the shame of her sin and my sin so he could wash her in his blood and make her pure and holy in his sight. And the only way she'll ever break the stronghold of idolatry that led her to those disastrous decisions is by seeing that there is a father whose attention is better and whose love is more steadfast than what she has searched for in the arms of a boy. That means I tell the young man struggling with pornography, I don't just tell him how destructive his habit is. I tell him there's a heavenly father who has set him apart for his purpose, sacrificed himself so that he could live free from sin as a respectable, valiant man of honor in his sight. That Jesus' last words on the cross were not, go fix yourself. His last words were, it is finished. It is only the weightiness of God's acceptance that empowers us to forsake idolatry. That's how, brothers and sisters, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. Our message is not simply stop sexual sin. Our message is, behold your God. Because it is amazement at the love of God for us that delivers us from all the lesser all the lesser attractions. I, I told a group of guys one time, I'll give a story quickly. A fraternity guys in college sitting around, they were talking about how difficult it was to control their sexual urges. And I told them, you can turn your sexual desires on and off like a light switch. <laughs> you should have seen the expression on their face when I said that. They're like, bro, we know that you're older, but we had no idea that happened to the human body, the male body when you turn 40 years old. And I said, um, I said I'll prove it to you. You can turn them off like a light switch. I was like, let's say that you and your girlfriend or you know you're at her apartment and um lights are low nobody else is there and things start happening i don't know what you guys call it anymore but when i was in college it had something to do with a baseball diamond um so you know you're you're working your way around this baseball diamond and you know at, at whatever point you cross the base that you know you're like everything is is in action you know the the the, the passion the desires are just raging they're all non going that's what we're talking about right there there's no way to turn that off i was like right then in that moment her Navy SEAL father walks in who just got back from Afghanistan. Bam! Off like a light switch. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good point. I, I, <laughs> what happened, I asked them, what happened in that moment? It's not that you lost sexuality. What changed in that moment is the largeness of the presence of the father. My friend Brennan, I told you about, told me that he said, while I still have this struggle, he said, what has led to my victory? He said, is realizing that there is a heavenly father who in the Holy Spirit is with me at every point and every day. And he doesn't tell me to go fix this for him. He says, follow me and let me do it through you. He said, as I've learned to live in the acceptance of the father, I've learned to have victory over sin. It is Christ in me. That is the hope of glory. Number eight, Jesus representing churches will not fear suffering for Christian confession. 
It does seem like every day I read another story about somebody who loses a job or has their freedoms curtailed and because they won't get in line with this issue. And I'm not trying to be paranoid. I mean, I love our country. I feel free. I'm not trying to overdo this and act like somebody's out for my head. But it's not hard to read the times. We won't be the first generation to suffer for Christian confession. In fact, in many ways, we're one of the only ones who never really has ever in history. My question for you is a sobering one. Are you ready? Are you ready to suffer for this? I can just imagine John the Baptist situation happening in our day. John was beheaded because he confronted Herod for his open marriage. He made his stepdaughter feel bad. The blogosphere, I could just see it happening, erupting today. John, if you just keep your mouth shut, talk about grace and love and any number of other things and focus on Jesus' healing, you'd still be alive. What a waste, John. Jesus said, I tell you, of those born among women, none is greater than John the Baptist. The spirit of John the Baptist executors is alive in our world is the spirit of John the Baptist alive in us. God help us. Number nine. Jesus representing churches, this is the final one, will not make sexual ethics, but the gospel, the center of their message. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a chapter on sexual ethics that came from a series of radio addresses that he did in the 1940s. His prescient understanding of these things is remarkable. He never talks about same sex specifically, but he says to his listeners, Does the Bible's teaching on sexuality, does it bother you? Can you not get around it? Punt it for a while. Because the center of Christianity is not sexual ethics. The center of Christianity is the cross and the lordship of Jesus. Wrestle with that. And if you come to understand that Jesus is who he says he is, then let him lead you in the areas of sexuality. Don't start with that. Start with Jesus. I frequently ask seekers who come to our church to punt the issue. Telling them, you've got to take time to figure out who Jesus is. And then if you conclude, as I have, that he is Lord, then trust him and let him lead you on this issue. Sexual ethics are not the center of Christianity. The gospel is. And sexual ethics should not be central or dominant in our message. His cross should be. At the same time, we have to address the question when it's brought to us. Just as John the Baptist did. Recently, a very prominent pastor said they wouldn't talk about this publicly since Jesus didn't talk about it. And it's a big issue in Jesus' day, too. He said, really? Among first century Jews in Jerusalem, whom Jesus' ministry is almost exclusively focused on, this was a big area of controversy? I know that it was in Rome, but Jesus wasn't ministering in Rome. When Paul went there, he talked about this in the first chapter of his book to the Romans. Y'all, we can't punt this issue forever. If homosexuality is not wrong, we should celebrate gay leaders in our churches, gay pastors, gay teachers leading in our church. The pastor that made this comment, I know, won't do that. But if it's not wrong, yet he won't let people in leadership who are gay and lesbian, how is that not bigotry? You see the dilemma? We can't punt this issue forever. We have to speak with grace and truth, which means that it's not the center. It's not the center. The cross is. That's what I want our ministry to be known for. I want it to be known for Jesus. But then there are times that we have to answer and we have to speak with grace and truth. The right response to this issue or any issue is defined by the gospel. And the cross, Jesus shows us how to respond. So if you want to preach like Jesus on this or any issue, my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, plunge yourself deep into the gospel. 
Study it. Not like a seminarian studies doctrine. Not like a politician or an apologist studies a poll or a position. Study it like you would study a sunset that leaves you speechless. Because the more you know of his great love for you, the more love will spill out of you toward others. The more we become aware of how far Jesus reached to save us, the more we overflow with grace and compassion toward others. First John four nineteen. we love because he first loved us. The more we are saturated with his love, the more we love, the more we believe the gospel, the more we become like the gospel. So immerse yourself in this conference as you leave this conference. Immerse yourself deeply in this truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom you and I are chief. Remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But now you, you are washed, you are sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, may God give us grace. Father, I pray for the spirit of the Lord Jesus. I pray for his courage. I pray for his humility. I pray for his compassion. Make us sufficient for what is to come. Sufficient in our courage, overflowing with love. May we be known as the friends, God, of those on the outside. May we be known as those who lay our lives down and never retreat from speaking with truth and grace. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're glad you joined us for this episode of the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast for the latest episodes. For more information on how to think biblically about issues of sexuality, visit ERLC.com.